0: Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. I actually grew up in public radio. I've been in the field since I was 16. And from the start, I was taught to offer people content that will inform and enlighten. This podcast is dedicated to spreading ideas that speak to the highest part of our listeners rather than the lowest common denominator. If you like what you hear, we're asking for your help. Please leave us a kind review on iTunes so others can find us. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation.
1: When you look at people whose success depends on other people, team leaders, so on, top executives, it turns out that having been a star performer, on your own. doesn't predict whether you'll be a great leader. It's your social intelligence. It's empathy. It's social skills. It's being able to communicate effectively, to listen. Those are what set the star leaders
0: apart. How our brains are designed and wired for a social intelligence that connects us with others. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. When people develop a genuine rapport, they often attribute the warm feelings to good chemistry. And now scientists who study the brain are confirming that human interaction, how we relate to each other, involves complex activity at the level of neurons, the tiny cells that make up our nervous system. Well, social
1: neuroscience um, largely studies empathy It largely studies the ways in which the state of one person is sensed and reacted to
0: by another. Daniel Goleman is a former New York Times science reporter specializing in how brain function affects the way we feel and perceive life. His best-selling book, Emotional Intelligence, described emerging brain research that shows the superior functioning of people who develop skills of self-awareness and the ability to regulate their emotions has now ventured into understanding the brain chemistry of how people interact with each other, the subject of his subsequent book, Social Intelligence.
1: It turns out that we have an enormous amount of uh, neural circuitry that works in tandem all the time to make this bridge from person to person, from brain to brain, really. One of the interesting facts, for example, is that... um, There are neurons whose sole task is to detect a smile or a laugh, and smile and laugh in response. So the shortest distance between two brains is a good laugh, because the natural, the instinctive reflex is that you see a smile, give a smile. There's a a saying in Tibet, when you smile, half of your smile is for yourself and half is for the other person.
0: A full smile. (laughs) Exactly, so we, we are wired to uh, be in sync with each other.
1: Yes. One of the big discoveries is, that, is the uh, pre- specific neural channel that makes emotions contagious between people. And when I'm feeling something, you sense it. When you're feeling something, I sense it. This is absolutely crucial for effective interaction, for us to know without having to say so, what's going on emotionally here? How so a lot of this is
0: happening it? on a nonverbal level.
1: It's all happening on a nonverbal, unconscious level. Actually, the research shows that the first ingredient of rapport is full attention. If you pay full attention, the rest happens automatically. You just are uh, getting into step with the other person, and then that, from that arises good feeling.
0: In your book, Social Intelligence, you describe a way of connecting with people called attunement that involves giving your full attention to the other person. What does it look like when we are deeply attuned to someone?
1: Well, let's ask what it looks like to the other person when you're deeply attuned with them. That person feels felt. That person feels heard. That person feels listened to. In other words, when you fully engage and pay full attention, and by the way, to do that, you have to put away your BlackBerry and you know turn away from your laptop and all of that.
0: You mean you even have to turn off your cell phone? Ha 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 ha
1: ha. You could let it ring and not answer. And if you attune that way, you know it because in your mind there are no distractions completely concentrated on the person at hand. The other person feels it. The other person senses it. And uh, it's very gratifying. That's, those are the moments we have uh, an interaction with another person where you use the word simpatico. We really clicked. Why did you really click? Because you're both fully present.
0: In the writing studio of Daniel Goleman's home, looking out on the bucolic Berkshire hills of western Massachusetts, he has studied and deeply pondered the brain and behavioral sciences. His dialogues with leading researchers are heard on an audio series entitled Wired to Connect. With a psychology doctorate from Harvard, Dan is both a trained therapist and an award-winning journalist. His quest is to understand how we can tap into natural brain capacities that support more enlightened and socially harmonious lives. Well, attunement is
1: the basis of empathy.
0: And uh, as uh, Paul Ekman makes
1: beautifully clear, there are three very different kinds of empathy, each with different consequences for attunement and for the course of an interaction or a relationship. The first is... Uh, Purely cognitive, it's just understanding how the other person is thinking about things. It's perspective-taking. And uh, if you understand how a person, the terms in which a person is thinking, uh, how they're seeing something, then you can put things to them in a way that resonates more
0: with them. And is that a matter of putting yourself in their shoes?
1: Sometimes that's what's used, uh, that phrase, putting yourself in others' shoes is used to describe perspective taking. could be a smelly experience. <laughs> I actually am not recommending actually putting yourself in the other person's shoes because there are fungal diseases that can be spread, but that's a different show, I'm sure. Uh, the second kind of empathy is uh, feeling with. It's this nonverbal rapport, this sense of uh, when you're upset, I'm upset. When you're sad, I feel sad when you're angry i feel your anger uh and that is uh the kind of empathy that first creates is is essential for chemistry for and, and it's in moments of chemistry when things work at their best between people whether it's you know people dating or people in a business meeting so it's very important there's a downside to this in that uh for the um Uh, caretaking or health professions, uh, social work and nursing and so on, if you are with people day in and day out who are upset, who are in pain, who are distressed, who are angry, who are depressed, and you're simply open to their feelings and they wash into you, it can lead to uh, emotional exhaustion.
0: You can get burned out. Yeah, it leads to burnout.
1: And, And the answer to that is actually not to close down. Unfortunately, too many professions socialize people to protect themselves by treating people as objects rather than people. I I think that's wrong. I think you can stay open emotionally if your self-regulation skills are strong. That is, if you can manage your own distress so that you can take it in, but you don't have to let it define how you feel, then you'll be okay.
0: And as part of that learning how to let it go after you've taken it in?
1: That's the essence of uh, managing distressing emotions is to register and then let it go. People who uh, ruminate, who obsess, who can't stop thinking about it are the people who end up getting you know too anxious, too depressed, uh, and uh, that that leads to burnout, as you said
0: So empathy requires at this second level you're describing the being with the other person's feelings, a willingness to take in what the person is feeling, but a healthy processing of empathy doesn't require that you then get anxiety ridden from it.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. You can register it but stay centered, basically. The third kind of empathy, then, uh, is concern for the other people. Not only do I understand how you're thinking and how you're feeling, but if you're in need... I'm prepared to help you if I can. And that's, of course, the basis for compassion. So uh, empathy uh, is extraordinarily important human quality.
0: Daniel Goleman reports that scientists have identified a system in the human body he calls the social brain. It orchestrates the mechanisms of our interactions with people as well as how we think and feel about those relationships. When two people are in contact, he says, each one's social brain continually adjusts and attunes to the others, and social awareness can be consciously developed. The
1: great thing is you can cultivate these abilities, like empathy. Richard Davidson, a neuroscientist who studied compassion, has found each of us has an emotional style. Uh, some of us are very quick to anger. Some of us are very slow. Some of us are uh, carry emotions, like the people who burn out just can't stop thinking about it. Two in the morning comes back to you, and some people can let it go. And that this defines a lot of our quality of life. And what his research is suggesting, which I found so interesting, is that with the right training, you can go in the better direction.
0: It's actually a skill that we can improve at. It's a muscle we can exercise. Our
1: emotional style is not set at birth. It's not just genetic. It's something that can be cultivated
0: and trained. And so how do we uh, improve our capacity for compassion?
1: Well, I think the first step is to pay attention. You know, uh, I once, when I was at the New York Times, wrote an article on homeless people. This was in the early 80s, when homelessness was first becoming a big problem. And my uh, training in psychology is as a clinical psychologist. So I was going out with, Uh, social work teams that were bringing food to homeless people and they had a route in the Upper West Side and you know at 78th Street in the median there's uh, Annie and she's been camped there for several days and we bring her a sandwich and then in the park we make our Central Park we make our rounds and there are like six different people and we bring them food and so on as I saw these people and talked to the workers about it, it it struck me that each of them had a very clear psychiatric diagnosis and that the reason homelessness was all of a sudden a problem was that they had closed the big mental hospitals and failed to open community clinics, which were supposed to have replaced them. So what I was, became interested in was the phenomena that people at first were shocked by homeless, seeing someone homeless, and then later never noticed them. We habituated to the homeless. You might see someone who's homeless out of the corner of your eye, you walk on by. In other words, we adapted to a situation which was very uncompassionate. So my argument is that com- the act of compassion begins with full attention, just as rapport does. You have to really see the person. If you see the person, then naturally, as I said before, empathy arises. If you tune into the other person, you feel with them. If empathy arises, and if that person is in dire need, then empathic concern can come. You want to help them, and then that begins a compassionate act. So I'd say that compassion begins with attention.
0: visiting with Daniel Goleman, former New York Times science reporter and author of the best-selling books Emotional Intelligence and Social Intelligence. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment of The Social Brain with Daniel Goleman, check our website, humanmedia.org.
1: I was going down to the subway in Times Square at rush hour on Friday, and on the stairs and below me, uh, as I approached, I saw there was a guy slumped over, shirtless, not moving. And people were stepping over him on the way down. And I was pretty shocked by it. and Because I kind of tuned into homeless people, I tuned into this guy. I went up to him, I stopped, and I tried to figure out what was wrong. Amazingly, the moment I stopped, six or eight other people stopped. I had brought his plight to the collective consciousness. And somebody uh, uh, realized that um, he, he was a uh, Hispanic speaker only, and it turned out he had been penniless for days, wandering the streets and fainted from hunger. So somebody went over to get him a hot dog, someone else went to get him some orange juice, someone else went to get a transit cop. Within three minutes, the guy was taken care of. But until that act of noticing... He, he just remained someone in deep need.
0: So the power of paying attention.
1: The power of paying attention, yeah. It opens the door to compassion.
0: Right. I mean, how could we be compassionate? How could we be with someone's feelings if we're not making enough effort to actually pay attention? Yeah,
1: and of course this is the plight of, uh, for example, disabled people or people who are otherwise marginalized in society is they don't get the full attention we don't see them fully.
0: Empathy and attunement give us awareness of others, but the next step is when we put that awareness into positive actions that can help people. So what conditions would make it more likely that people will will behave uh, altruistically, behave in the best interests of others?
1: Well, I think that can be answered in a couple of ways. One is... What background makes one person more likely to help than another? And I think having models in in your childhood, you know, parents, family, friends, who uh, you know bring food to um, disabled people, people who are stuck at home, or a- any number of ways in which people help other people.
0: Just for a child to observe that hum- to human beings that, do yeah. this for each other. Yep.
1: But then I think more important is for a child to have the chance to do that himself or herself. Having the experience of helping others is intrinsically gratifying. We are wired to feel good about doing good. And so the earlier and the more often children have that experience, the more deeply they realize, actually the Dalai Lama said it very well, he said the first beneficiary of compassion is the compassionate person. The second is the person that has helped. I think the other thing that uh, makes a difference is the opportunity. If we don't give children ourselves the opportunity to be compassionate, if we're completely self-absorbed, we only uh, stay in a rut focused on our own needs, desires, whims, wants, then we don't have the chance to express that part of ourselves.
0: Give people the opportunity to be compassionate?
1: Yeah. Yeah, think about, think about you know, our life, our lives. Do we take the time? Do we put ourselves in a situation where we can even uh, confront people who are in need? Often not. Often we're so uh, caught up in our own lives that we don't even see the people in our life space that we could be helping. So self-absorption is the greatest enemy of compassion
0: and in, in the greatest block to actually doing something performing altruistic exactly. actions like, yeah yeah um, and so breaking through self-absorption
1: uh, attunement to other people the social brain is for that
0: the Abilities to understand people and get along with others are obviously crucial on the job when people work together in teams and often people are very skilled in some technical expertise and yet they may be weak in people skills and fall down as managers. You've written about how even some people leading humanitarian organizations are not strong at people skills, even though that may seem ironic. So what have we learned about ways to incorporate people skills and social intelligence in the workplace?
1: Well, uh, since um, emotional intelligence came out, I've been really pleased to see that, that basic framework, which by the way, I didn't invent. The model of social intelligence was first proposed by two psychologists at Yale, uh, Peter Salovey and uh, John Mayer, who's now at the University of New Hampshire. I just wrote about it uh, in a format that a lot of people paid attention to. But since that's happened, it has now become the core understanding in many, many organizations, maybe most now, of the basis of effective leadership. And the reason is this, that uh, if you look at people who are outstanding performers and they're by whatever metric makes sense in whatever job you know sales how many sales there are running a division or uh, taking phone calls there are different metrics for any job if you look at people who are in the top 10 percent generally what you find is that if they if their job just depends on uh, the, their own efforts if they're what are called uh, you know, solitary contributors writing software code on your own for example uh, people who are very good at the first two parts of emotional intelligence excel, people who have high self-awareness and high self-regulation self-regulation means I can focus on the job at hand I don't let myself get distracted uh, I uh, can keep motivated and keep working toward my goal When you look at people whose success depends on other people, team leaders, heads of divisions, and so on, top executives, it turns out that having been a star performer on your own doesn't predict whether you'll be a great leader. It's your social intelligence. It's empathy. It's social skills. It's being able to communicate effectively, to listen. Those are what set the star leaders apart, uh, not the ability... To manage yourself necessarily so that that first set the self-management set is necessary of course but it's not sufficient for leadership so a lot of the uh, uh, training now that they're doing for leaders a lot of coaching one-on-one coaching has to do with these people skills
0: so where do people working in Nonprofit organizations, educational institutions, private corporations uh, tend to need the most help in implementing some of these uh, skills of social well, intelligence.
1: Uh, there are really, uh, you know, uh, 12 to 18 key abilities or competencies that leaders need uh, that's emerged from studies in organizations of all kinds. I'd say the common cold. The common cold of leadership is probably poor listening. You're too busy. I mean, we're time pressured, and you've got so much to do, and you're juggling your BlackBerry and agendas and the next meeting and the next call. And uh, leaders today often feel they don't have the time to stop and really attune in that way we were talking about to other people. Seems like a waste of time. Actually, if you don't do that, you failed to connect in the first place.
0: And then you've really wasted your time. Exactly. And so how corrosive is this wave of multitasking um, that seems to have gripped um, and infected uh, so much of our society?
1: Well, it's obviously a real uh, threat to those human moments where you pay full attention because that's the one thing that seems to be uh, trivial. It's at the bottom of the list. We've got all these other important things to do, after all. But if you're a leader or if you just are working with other people, it's your relationships that are going to help you work at your best or that are crucial to working at your best.
0: You've helped to found the research center called the Collaborative for Academic Social and Emotional Learning, now headquartered at the University of Illinois Chicago. How can these skills be taught to young people?
1: Oh, uh, it, it, in hundreds of ways. And there are actually uh, one to 200 model programs in this now being used in schools worldwide. And they're, the best ones are what's called developmentally appropriate. That means that they'll teach the same lesson to kids one way at kindergarten, another way in second grade, another way in fourth grade, another way in seventh grade, and so on to be sure that as the, the child's brain grows and matures, and it's the social and emotional circuitry of the brain which is the last part to become anatomically mature. So you want to be sure that a child keeps getting the same lesson. For example, how to listen, how to understand not just what you're feeling now, but why you're feeling that, how to understand the difference between feeling something and what you do about it. That's really crucial, particularly for anger. How to understand, how to uh, think about social quandaries and come to sound decisions. For, For example, how to say no to peer pressure and keep your friends. That's an extraordinarily important lesson and one we should teach every child.
0: I wonder, Dan, how studying this for many years now has affected your own relationships with people.
1: Well, you know, it certainly sensitized me to, uh, for example, whether I'm actually paying attention because I see that that's very important. Just having that in the back of my mind, I think, helps me pay better attention more often. Uh, So you're
0: paying attention to paying attention.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Just thinking about how important connection is, empathy is, listening, all of that. But as to how well I'm doing, I think you'd have to ask my uh, my wife and my family.
0: Dan Goldman's new area of focus is what he calls ecological intelligence, a saner and more holistic way of relating to our natural world. And his various interests, self-awareness, healthy self-regulation, and more conscious social relations, all somehow neatly intertwine. If, if you put it all together, I think that
1: our ability to meet the challenges that, uh, you know, the environmental crisis and international crises and getting along between groups internationally, all of that at the largest level of the world stage depends essentially on how people are with each other. I think that improving or cultivating or upgrading our social intelligence as a species would be one of the better ways to help us survive into the future.
0: Daniel Goleman, author of Social Intelligence and Emotional Intelligence, at his home in the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts. To Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster, Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network, Incorporated. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, The Social Brain with Daniel Goleman, is Humankind program number 131. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio.